Hello, my name is Brian. Um, my little team and I, the congregation, are reading a faith formation in a secular age. And um, we'd love some more stories of imitatable examples of how congregations are putting this, I don't know, putting into practice, putting into some kind of with flesh on it in reality. Uh, there's, a, there's a gap for some people between the theological idea of it and the, how this, what this looks like in times and dates and spaces and the normal things we do as congregations. So if you have a couple more illustrative examples, it'd be a great gift to us. Peace. So that question that we just listened to, there was actually several that were kind of around that same theme. And this is a question that's come up a lot. And so we'll throw it back to you. Andy, who I'm sitting here with, we're outside on his deck right now, grilling some brats. We're having our social distancing. We are social grilling. distancing. Yes, and this grilling. Table's definitely. You hauled your gas grill up to my deck so that we're not even cooking food on the same. Yep. Same grill. And for some reason, you put a bunch of charcoal in it and just started it on fire. But you know, <laughs> it works. Um, but that question was asking something that a lot of our listeners have asked in various ways and in questions. Um, you know, for people who are on the ground in ministry doing it right now. Um, how do you take some of your ideas that are maybe more theological, um, you know, more uh, philosophical, how do you actually, like, do that in a ministry context, especially when parents and senior pastors and everyone else is expecting you to, you know, do the day-to-day ministry and, and, and just make things happen? How do you take some of the stuff that you talk about in your books, especially the end of youth ministry, and do that, like, on a practical level? Well, I hope the end of youth ministry is is probably one of the more practical books that, that I've written. You know, like, it gets, at least gives you, try, it tries to give you a picture of, of maybe what this looks like. So, I don't know. I mean, it's really hard because this is a question I get quite often. And I mean, at one level, the way I would answer it is is to tell you to to come to our little church in South Minneapolis. But then, as soon as you would come, I'd feel really self conscious because you're not going to see anything amazing. You know what I mean? Like you're just going to see a faithful little church doing its thing. But um, but where these ideas get most embedded and practically lived out is in that in that little congregation that my that uh, my wife Cara leads um, so you you would have to see it I mean I, you know this it seems like a cop up but in some ways you, you have to see it um, but we are we do have a Lily Grant at Luther Seminary that we're going to be working on now we're, we're going to really be kind of taking 12 congregations into living this out and, and seeing what it looks like so hopefully I, I will have a better answer for this or probably not a better answer, but um, 12 concrete cases to point you to, to of what this looks like. But I want to be very careful with even how we think about that overall because there is something that we're really struggling with, I think, in the context of ministry and, and maybe in a larger context of what it means to be people in, in late modernity. But I think that we haven't been really clear on what we actually mean. This seems very abstract and obscure, but it, on what we mean by action. Like, what, what is an action and what is an action for? And um, one of the really important books that was written, I think it was written in the early 70s by a Frankfurt School thinker, which we've, we've referenced other Frankfurt School thinkers on this podcast, particularly Hartmut Rosa. But one of the kind of, uh, not one of the originators of the Frankfurt School, but kind of, you know, second generation or 0.5 generation um, is a guy by the name of Eric Fromm. Who, so he's, he, was, he, he was born right after... World War One, and you know, lived until I don't know when he died. Probably late seventies, early eighties. But um, immigrated to the United States. Uh, he he was uh, born into a Jewish family in Frankfurt, and uh, immigrated to the United States 
to escape Nazi Germany. But one, he's got this really famous book called um, To Have or To Be. And his argument, the whole book is really interesting, but there's about four pages that are just fascinating. And one of the things he wants to argue is that the way we've all been kind of formed is to see action in late modernity as um, what I would call in the having mode. And ultimately, it means that that action is based in, um, in the expenditure of energy. So that means that all actions are equalized. Now all actions are equalized. And, and in some sense, this is the radicalness of the priesthood of all believers, that it doesn't matter if you're a priest or if you're the butcher, the baker, or even the candlestick maker. It doesn't really matter as long as you do that with a devout, even pietist heart. That's, that's what matters. So all action is equalized for the sake of it being holy or directed fully and completely, our lives directed fully and completely to God. But Fromm's point is that as like classic modernity takes shape, it's very happy to inherit from Protestantism this sense of action as the equalizing of action, that action as um, being equal across society. But what it does is it sames it. And so instead of just equalizing, it sames it. So everything's the same. So if you're teaching a fifth grade class how to read poetry or you're moving a rock, that's the same thing. Is that like a scientific reality then coming from the enlightenment and the understanding of physics and stuff? Or is it more of a metaphysical kind of philosophical understanding of it? Uh, I think it, it, it actually is more of a kind of reduced secular sense of um, kind of, again, trying to equate all social action as being kind of equalized or samed in some ways. It's it's almost more political, if that, if that makes sense. So, and I'm just trying to get my head wrapped around this idea. Does it also kind of have to do with the phenomenon of disenchantment? Where Absolutely. Where in, in medieval times... You know, if someone took bread and wine in a church setting and said certain words, there was this this metaphysical reality that that transformed. Whereas in you know a Protestant church, it's just hey, you can you can say community, no problem. Like anybody can do it. It's all the same. Is that kind of what yeah. you're getting at? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I remember like Taylor's whole point is you can only have this kind of society, a society where belief in God is optional. Almost optional to the point of you don't think about it, you don't really believe it or practice it for yep, sure, right? Sure. Like you can only you only can get that society because it's born out of a society that really, really believed. I mean, it's very paradoxical, right? right? Like you have to have a society that cared so much about belief, like would would turn its back on Rome and say, now everyone's a priest, and everyone's got to live to the level of a priest. It doesn't matter what you do. It's how you do it. You need to do it passionately. You need to do it all out for God. Your whole heart needs to be turned towards God. Only in a society like that, eventually, with some zigzags and some transitions culturally, can you get to a society that's like, meh, do I really have to believe that? In this inheritance of kind of action as this way, that the, at the first move is to equalize action so everybody, it doesn't matter if you're a priest, you can you can participate in, in a kind of almost sacramental reality yourself by just your heart being turned towards God. Right. I mean, that's a little overstated, but essentially that. Like, the, the divine and the human encounter can happen through your own 
willful desire to follow this. And that turns all action in some ways. So you can see how this works kind of Because it becomes like an individualistic, right? right so so then the it's Cal- all about you and your own choice. Yeah, right. Like this is part of the inherited problem of Protestantism is that you only get the kind of expressive individualism you have because of Protestantism. Though Protestantism was never really about expressive individualism, but it allowed for the conditions for such a thing to happen. And then you, know you get I mean? all that worship music that talks about Jesus who could basically be your boyfriend the way you're talking about him, right? Yeah, right. But, but I'm, I guess my point here is then you can see this even in Protestantism in its it's real good and it's real good maybe theological frame or it's um, interesting ecclesial frame is it's basically saying we don't differentiate which kind of actions are holier priests or lay people all actions are equal and what matters is that you expend religious energy for that right like that you give your religion like you passionately pray and you passionately care for your neighbor and you passionately um catechize your kids that what's that's what matters but what happens then in in mid to late modernity is what if you take god out of that and now all action is is the expenditure of energy Mm -hmm. but for what there's no longer any transcendent or god referent so now actually it's just whoever can expend the most energy who wins at least in a capitalist, particularly a neoliberal kind of context. So the more energy you expend, the more you're winning. That's how you win. Have you watched the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance? You know, what I was really struck by when I was watching that documentary um, is that Michael Jordan, when he's talking, I mean, it's just very obvious that that guy just thinks differently. He acts differently than most other people. Like, he just wants to win all the time, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to be the best. And yeah, like that, punch his teammates in the face. Right, exactly. <laughs> but that's kind of the whole point of that whole show that they're trying to, to show, and maybe even that narrative that they're trying to uplift is what you're saying. It's like whoever spends the most energy and puts the most work into right. it is yeah. going to be Which the GOAT. Which is why Michael, yes, is, is why Michael Jordan is the GOAT, because... He could ex- hit. Well, I mean, there's two things at play there. Is that he, what made him great? Like when you watch that documentary at the beginning, it's just pure aesthetic talent, right? It's genius. It's it's just, in in some sense, it's like a pseudo transcendent reality. Like where would this guy come from? Just like North Carolina, and he just shows up. But he is like virtuoso, virtuoso, right? Like he's touched by God. There's there's kind of a transcendent quality to this this kind of performative aesthetic that um, doesn't really believe in a God, but nevertheless is still haunted by the fact that there could be a transcendent reality that's beyond the metaphysical in the sense like we don't know where this guy came from. I mean, it, it, Jordan in some sense is like the 20th century um, equivalent of Mozart. Right. You know what I mean? Like... Here comes Mozart into the heat of, into the heart of the Enlightenment, and people are like, we don't believe in this anymore, at least people in Paris. And uh, and then here comes this kid, like, playing playing his instruments like no one can play it, and it's just genius takes on this almost transcendent religious quality. And Isaiah Thomas is Salieri. Yeah, <laughs> That's a total inside joke for all the music nerds. For all of you who love sports and classical music, you'll get that one, yeah. Which there may be one of you out there. Um, But yeah, so he has that. But remember, like the whole narrative arc of of the, uh, uh, The Last Dance is that, at least as they do those flashbacks, is like, Jordan, it's not enough to be a virtuoso. You have to you have to learn how to work hard. And like what makes Jordan the best of the best isn't that he was just 
touched and blessed by God with ultimate genius when it comes to a round ball and a hoop. It's that he worked harder than anyone. He expended the most energy. He was cutthroat about expending energy. So in some ways, it's like the great late modern story is that you both get touched by the basketball gods and also like take it upon yourself, within yourself, the drive to compete and to win, to expend more energy to beat anyone. But this is, I mean, this is the point then is that action becomes the expenditure of energy. And what that means, and we see this with Jordan, it's interesting that we've gotten on to Jordan here, but that then the greatest actors within our, our society are the busiest ones because the more energy you can expend. And this, this becomes in many ways like a trap is now the busier you are, the better you're doing. And now, I mean, just project that into pastoral ministry. If, if the pastor does not have, if she does not have a different understanding of what action is and what action is for, and particularly in ministry. The best pastor is the pastor who expends the most energy in ministry, does the most ministerial operations, and can, well, I mean, we just have just, you know, graveyards and junkyards of families and others who uh, were connected to, to pastors whose lives were ruined because the pastor really believed that their action, that they owed it to God to expend more energy than anyone else for the sake of the gospel. And it just is taking in a false view of action from modernity that has kind of stripped God from action and it ends up destroying people. I actually talk with my dad about that sometimes. So I'm a pastor. My dad is a dentist. Yeah. His job. The pastor of teeth. Yeah, the pastor of teeth. That's right. Uh, his job is all about production. And he tries to cram his schedule as tight as it'll go because the more people that come in the door, you know, the more his practice makes and then the better they do. Right. Um, my job, you know, there might be a week where I haven't preached a sermon or something but like it's just it's not a production-based occupation whatsoever you know it's and, and so there's just that weird thing but as somebody depending on what church you're at depending on what church you're at right but but there's just that like tendency sometimes and i feel it where if there's a, a season where things are like slower i almost feel guilty because i'm just like i need to be doing more like what can i be doing what can i be doing what can sure, i be doing? Right, you know right right yeah i mean we still feel this way at like our synods or presbyteries or whatever i mean you can see the pastor i mean it's it just this like kind of sadistic thing we, we we feel all over our culture like we think about our prince like the principal at our kid's school like he looks haggard and exhausted he must be a good principal i mean he really cares yeah right? And it's the same way kind of with the pastor, like the people in our synod who seem like they're just exhausted because they're doing so much. I mean, the, the way this really practically comes to form is like one of the reasons that the really busy list of programs matters and why pastors push for it, there, it may not even really be good for your church necessarily, but it, it is, it makes you feel like you're expending the most energy to doing the best job. Yep, Right. Well, and it also goes back to that dynamic dynamic stabilization that we talked about in in a previous previous episode. And I think you were the one. It was uh, what was it? P. You had that formula. P plus. Yeah. Uh, P plus M equals M squared. So right. programs plus members equals member. We should we that, should do equations as non math people. Right. But it's yeah, like it's terrible. But it's just but it's that idea, right? Squared, that yeah. that it's just that that vicious treadmill that just keeps going and going and. Yeah, and that's and that's the problem is so that when the expenditure of energy is the view of action, then you busyness becomes the shape of good action. And so 
in, in, and I kind of always feel this when like when people are saying like, well, how do I live this out? Is like they want you can see how this like in business management that finds its way into the church, like people are really concerned, like help me organize my expenditure of energy. So it is the most efficient and most productive, right? Like that, that's what I want to do. Because if I can, if I'm willing to give 110%, which by the way is philosophically impossible, but if I'm willing to give 110%, then what I need is I need other ways of thinking about how I can use that action efficiently and in the right way and i can focus on the main i can keep the main thing the main thing and all the others kind of business businessy slogans of of kind of management organization in the management industry and so the pastor gets really pulled into that but my point is is uh, and, and when people ask me like the practical question like what should this look like in my church i feel like they're kind of saying like how should i expend my energy in an appropriate way and what I want to say is that we need to rethink what action actually constitutes. And this is Fromm's point, as we've meandered around Fromm, is Fromm thinks that this is always in the having mode. It assumes that action is to have something. And there's a part of that about human action, but what's more fundamental about human action is in the being mode, to actually be. And so I think the only way to practically live this out, why I'm always resistant of saying, like, do this, do that, do these eight things and then that, basically because I don't know them, and if I did, I would charge you a crap ton of money. Um, I say that in jest. But uh, but the I think the bigger issue is, is that this is a being mode form of action. So what really matters is the quality of relationships, not to have more things, have more members, have more programs, but what you can look like practically, what this actually looks like practically is to attend to the quality of the relationships in your congregation. The more people know each other, the more people know each other's narratives and stories, the more people can testify to their, their deep experiences, their, their, their death experiences, and the new life that came out of them. That's when you are at the place where you need to be. So it's, it's really hard to, to kind of quantify and to name it because it, it, it feels like we should know because that's how the... the having mode of action functions but in the being mode what you want to do ultimately is attend to the relationships inside your community and seek for resonance seek for connection to one another to god to the world itself to beauty like those are the things that actually matter and i think that's what taylor is trying to get at is to to enter back into transcendence say which is what he wants to get to 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 open up what taylor would say skylights to transcendence is it's the way of the poet it's the way to seek for beauty again it's the way to to nurse an idea and to care about a relationship um when you put all having mode things aside to be with a family who's grieving or to be with a child um, who wants to talk to you about the first day of kindergarten, if they can go to kindergarten in a pandemic, that is the height of action. It's the participation and sharing in each other's lives. That's fundamental. And it also sounds like what you're saying is action in modernity is based upon the idea that you will achieve results from it that are quantifiable. So, like, if, if Michael Jordan works his butt off, he can be the best basketball player and win six the championships, championships six times. Yeah. Um, you know, if my dad, the dentist, can, can pack his schedule, he can earn this much money and, you know, continue to grow the practice. Um, and that's great because, obviously, you know, 
Modernity is great for some things, but for a ministry context. For clean teeth, it's very it's, good. Right, exactly. It's, and winning no, championships. Teeth have never been better. But I think the trap we fall into in the church, and again, we've, we've said this before, but it just became very clear to me as we were talking about this. There's that understanding that churches are in decline. The numbers are going down. So if we work harder do things differently, those numbers are going to go back up. But maybe the whole point is those shouldn't be the results that we're looking for. And kind of your point, it's more about the depth of the relationships that we have in the community as opposed to numbers that can be reported on a spreadsheet. Yeah, absolutely. Because, again, this is becomes about experiences of divine action, of d- experiences of, of transcendence, which is always bed in real- embedded in realities of narrative and participation and... Um, and relationship experiences of resonance, you know, like in, and the thing to think about resonance is that we maybe mentioned that in the podcast a little bit. And it comes from that Frankfurt thinker, Hartmut Rosa is that resonance is not a kind of effervescent feeling or something. It's not a, like a new age feeling. It's a mode of action. Um, Rose is a sociologist. He thinks that there is a form of action. He's drawing off of from in the being mode. And modernity tries to do away with that. And it has kind of used Protestantism to do that. And I think that we would do well, bishops and um, other leaders and denominations um, would do well to think about pastoral action not in a having mode, even in a religious having mode, but in a being mode. What does it mean to be together? What does it mean to be before God? What does it mean to be with those who are in need? What does it mean to be with our neighbors? What does it mean to actually feel alive? And, and, and that has a concrete reality. Like, what should we do when people ask that? Is you should be alive. You should, you should experience resonance. You should wonder where God is in the midst of that and try to interpret those stories and those narratives. New Time Religion featuring Dr. Andy Root is produced by me, Derek Tronsgaard. You can check out Andy's latest book, The End of Youth Ministry, available now that touches on many of the themes that we talk about in the podcast. New Time Religion is a production of the Alter Guild Podcast Network, and you can check them out at alterguild.org. That's A-L-T-E-R guild.org for more great shows. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for another round of New Time Religion.